Abydos and the Old Kingdom. After the Second Dynasty, Abydos's political influence waned, but it increased in spiritual importance. The kings of Egypt no longer came from the Nomothes or were buried at the royal necropolis of Abydos, but the city slowly became the center of Osiris worship, which made it a premier spiritual center in Egypt. As Egypt transitioned from the early dynastic period to the Old Kingdom during the Third Dynasty, political power was transferred from Abydos to Memphis. The move not only marked the end of Abydos's political power, but also the end of its active use as a royal necropolis. During the Old Kingdom, the kings and nobles were buried in a new necropolis just west of Memphis, near what is now the town of Saqqara. Memphis became the political capital of Egypt for most of its history from that period forward, and it also gained a fair amount of religious significance. The royal necropolis in Saqqara was followed by Giza, and after that royal burials returned to Saqqara. Abydos would never again be a politically important city in ancient Egypt, but it evolved and found ways to remain relevant. Much of what stands today as the Abydos Temple Complex was erected during the New Kingdom, but the first structures were built there during the Old Kingdom. The Old Kingdom Abydos Temple Complex was probably quite small when compared to the New Kingdom Complex, and it was comprised of mud brick, which meant that later additions largely consumed the original complex. It is difficult to say for sure when construction began on the Abydos Temple complex, but an inscribed cartouche on King Pepi I, 2321-2287 BCE, means that it was at least as old as the 6th dynasty. Abydos eventually came to be associated with the god Osiris, with the city and temple complex being his cult center, but as the city became an important spiritual site, he was not the temple's primary god initially. When the temple complex of Abydos was first constructed during the Old Kingdom, it was dedicated to a jackal god named Kenti Amatu, who was worshipped extensively in the Nome of Thes, but was relatively unknown in other parts of Egypt. Kenti Amatu was a variant of Anubis, who, like Osiris, was a god of the dead. Anubis and his different manifestations made him the most important Egyptian funerary god before Osiris rose in popularity, so it is no surprise that he was the most important deity in Abydos as well. Kenti Amatu often went by the moniker Foremost of the Westerners, a reference to the western bank of the Nile River. The royal necropolis at Abydos and nearly every other Egyptian necropolis, with the exception of Amarna, were located on the western bank of the Nile River. The temple was only later dedicated to Osiris sometime after he rose in prominence in the Egyptian religion during the late Old Kingdom, which can be seen in the pyramid text discussed earlier. The importance of the Abydos temple before Osiris is articulated in a stoa inscription from Abydos that was dedicated by the vizier Zao during the rule of Pepi II, 2278-2184 BCE. It states, I made this an Abydos of Thenis, as one in honor of the majesty of the king of the upper and lower Egypt. Neferker, who lives forever with the majesty of King Merir and King Mernir, out of love for the gnome in which I was born by the favorite of the king Nevet, to my father the hereditary prince, Count Prince, honored by the great King Kui, O ye living who are upon earth, every superior prophet, every prophet, 
every other temple of the majesty of my lord Osiris, as the king lives for you, ye shall take for me the mortuary offering from the income of this temple, of that which I have conveyed by decree, and that which ye convey for yourselves. When ye see my offices with the king, because I was more honored by my lord than any noble. Abydos and the Middle Kingdom the rising religious significance of Abydos was cut short very quickly when the state collapsed and the country entered into what historians now call the First Intermediate Phase, 2125 to 2055 BC. During the First Intermediate Period, the central government in Memphis lost most of its power and regional warlords who claimed kingship came to power. The city of Heracleopolis became the seat of power for a number of kings, now classed as the Ninth and Tenth Dynasties, while hundreds of miles to the south of Thebes, the Eleventh Dynasty, which was contemporary with the Tenth Dynasty, claimed to be the legitimate rulers of Egypt. Abydos was located about halfway between the two cities, which made it a major battlefield. Excavations have revealed that the area in and around Abydos suffered heavy destruction during this period, but once the smoke cleared and the kings of the Eleventh Dynasty became the sole rulers of Egypt, peace and stability returned to the land. When Egypt emerged from the First Intermediate Period, the political landscape of the area had shifted dramatically. The upper Egyptian city of Thebes rose to prominence for the first time in Egyptian history, and Memphis once more became the capital. Abydos was not forgotten during the Middle Kingdom, though, as it retained a later increase its religious significance. At an early stage during the Middle Kingdom, some of the more important kings patronized the temple complex, expanding it greatly and making it the cult center of Osiris. Mentuhotep II, 2055 to 2004 BCE, was the sixth king of the Eleventh Dynasty and generally considered by Egyptologists to be the first king of the Middle Kingdom because he defeated the Tenth Dynasty and reunified Egypt. In order to ensure that his dynasty would last and that the Egyptian state would not quickly collapse again, Mentenhotep II initiated administrative reforms that were based on the Old Kingdom model. As the busy king reorganized the Egyptian state in order to make it stronger and more efficient, he also took the time to construct monuments, just as all notable pharaohs did. In the process, Mentenhotep made modest additions to the temple complex at Abydos, which established a precedent for later Middle Kingdom kings to also build at the site. In a short inscription on the two sides of the stela, Mentenhotep II described some of the work he had done at Abydos. I conducted the work in the temple, built his house, and dug the lake. I masoned the well by command of the majesty of Horus. I conducted the work in the temple, built a stone of Aen, offering tablets of lapis, lazuli, or bronze, of electum and silver. Copper was plentiful without end, bronze without limit, collars of real malachite, ornaments of every kind of costly stone, of the choicest of everything, which are given to a god at his processions by virtue of my office of master of secret things. Although Metenhotep II's efforts may have been modest, they were enough to bring considerable interest back to Abydos, making it one of ancient Egypt's premier religious sites. As a result, the 12th dynasty kings added their own elements to the temple complex. 
The sacred bark mentioned in the text is the small boat model that held the cult statue of Osiris, brought out of its sanctuary on certain festival days and paraded throughout the temple complex. Most of the additions made during this dynasty at the Osiris Temple in Abydos were of mud brick, but some of them also included some stone. The use of some stone allowed the temple to endure much longer, which was probably part of the reason that it was referred to as the Sanuret Temple during the 13th dynasty. Inscriptions led by a lesser-known 13th dynasty king named Neferhotep demonstrate the growing importance of Abydos as the cult center of Osiris and the fact that the royal necropolis was still recognized as a religious site even though it was no longer actively used. According to a stella erected by Neferhotep at Abydos, he investigated records in the city of Heliopolis in order to learn how to properly worship Osiris. Neferhotep was particularly interested in how to construct a proper cult statue of the god. Part of the text states, His Majesty proceeded to the library. His Majesty opened the rolls together with these companions. Lo, His Majesty found the rolls of the house of Osiris, first of the Westerners, Lord of Abydos. His Majesty said to these companions, My Majesty hails my father Osiris, first of the Westerners, Lord of Abydos. I will fashion him his limbs, his face, his fingers, according to that which my majesty has seen in the rolls, his form as king of upper and lower Egypt, at his coming forth from the body of Nut, his majesty proceeded in the sacred ship, together with his god, causing that sacred offering to be presented to his father, the first of the western mirror, the sacred things for Osiris, first of the westerners in all names. Those hostile to the sacred bark were overthrown. Lo, the majesty of this god appeared in procession, is Enid united with him. Behold, my majesty has made these monuments for my father Osiris, first of the Westerners, lord of Abydos, because I so much loved him more than all gods. The same king erected two boundary stelae at each end of the Abydos cemetery, prohibiting all public access. It reads, Year four, my majesty, life, prosperity, and health, decrees that the cemetery, Tezoser, south of Abydos, shall be protected and defended from his father, Wepawat, lord of Tezoser, as Horus did for his father, Osiris, Winifer, not permitting persons to set foot in this cemetery. Two stelae are set up at its south and at its north, engraved with the great name of my majesty, life, prosperity, and health. The southern stelae is made in addition to these stelae, which are as far as south as the northern stelae in addition to those stelae, which are as far as the north. As for him whom anyone shall find within these stelae, whether a craftsman or a priest at his business, she shall be branded. As for any official who shall have a tomb made for himself within this cemetery, he shall be reported and the law shall be executed upon him and the necropolis custodian as on this day. Now, as for any addition to the cemetery in place where the people have made tombs for themselves, there shall they be buried. May he, the king, be thereby given life, stability, satisfaction, health. May his heart be glad together with his ka upon the throne of Horus like Ray forever. This text demonstrates that although Abydos had ceased being used as a royal necropolis for several hundred years, 
it still held a certain amount of spiritual gravitas in the Middle Kingdom, to the extent that a law had to be made prohibiting unsanctioned burials. As mentioned earlier, it was during the Middle Kingdom when Abydos came to be more closely associated with Osiris. Thanks to Sinosret's the first efforts, along with those of his successors, Abydos became the primary cult center of Osiris by the middle of the 12th dynasty, and as the temple complex at Abydos grew in the Middle Kingdom, so too did the town itself. Although it never regained the political importance it had in the early dynastic period, the growing significance of the Osiris cult would have been a boon for the local economy and population. As the endowments for the Osiris cult grew, so too did the markets which would have been needed to supply the peasants who worked in the temple's fields. Moreover, pilgrims from throughout Egypt traveled to Abydos to pay homage to Osiris. These travelers no doubt would have brought some of their own provisions, but they also traded in the Abydos market, thereby stimulating the local economy. The growth of the Osiris cult at Abydos during the Middle Kingdom can be mainly attributed to royal patronage, but other factors also played a role that were not directly under the purview of royal power. As was common in ancient Egyptian religions, Osiris began to be associated and merged with other deities in a syncretic fashion. One of the gods that became syncretically linked to Osiris during the Middle Kingdom was the Min Horus the Victorious, which resulted in a version of Osiris that was very popular among commoners. This was indicative of the trend that began in the 11th dynasty, whereby private, non-royal individuals began to participate more actively in the Osiris cult. During this period, private individuals began erecting small setographs and stelae in the sanctuary of Osiris. A stela donated by a private individual named Inkara Hufret is a common example of this practice. It says, my Majesty deigns to have you journey upstream to Abydos in the name of Thes, to make my monument for my father Osiris, foremost of all the Westerners, to adorn his secret image with fine gold, which he has let my Majesty bring back from Nubia in triumphant victory. You will surely do this in the best manner of acting for the benefit of my father Osiris, for my majesty sends you with my heart, relying on your doing everything to the heart's content of my majesty. I did all that his majesty commanded in executing my lord's command, for his father Osiris, foremost of the Westerners, lord of Abydos, great power in the Nomothis. Another stella, donated by a nobleman named Kentensene, who lived in Abydos during the reign of Eminen Hat II, 1922-878 BCE, recounts how the owner was given the position of temple inspector by the king. It reads partly like a travel itinerary, documenting the fact that Kentensene was sent to some of the most important temple towns in Egypt before returning to Abydos. Eminen Hat II Beloved of Osiris, first of the Westerners given life, his real favorite servant, master of secret things of the king's wardrobe. Commencite, he says, I came at the front of the presence of his majesty. He had me inspect the divine fathers to expel evil and to prosper the fashions of their work in eternal affairs. I commanded to fashion their offering tables. The electum was under my seal. 
I reached Elephant Dane according to his command. I kissed the earth before the Lord of the Cataract. I returned by way over which I had passed. I drove in the mooring sticks at Abydos. I fixed my name at the place where is the god Osiris, first of the Westerners, Lord of Eternity, ruler of the West, the place to which all that is flees, for the sake of the benefit therein, in the midst of the followers of the Lord of Life that I might eat his loaf and come forth by day, that my spirit might enjoy the ceremonies of people, kind in heart toward my tomb, and in hand toward my Stella. For I have not that I may labor, being a spirit in the necropolis cliff, the ruler of eternity, that I may smell the earth before Wapawit, commence a day, triumphant lord of reverence. As noted earlier, many of these individuals, such as Ekaranophet, would have traveled great distances across Egypt to honor Osiris at Abydos. This practice continued through the Middle Kingdom until it collapsed and Egypt entered into the Second Intermediate Period, 1650 to 1550 BCE. Abydos and the New Kingdom the damage that Abydos suffered during the first intermediate period was not replicated during the second intermediate period, although some of the same issues that brought down the old kingdom also led to the collapse of the middle kingdom. The overall political situation was quite different. Several different dynasties claimed kingship simultaneously, but the most important was the fifteenth dynasty, which was comprised of a foreign people known as the Hyksos. They ruled in the delta from their capital of Avarice, but a native Egyptian 17th dynasty based in Thebes controlled most of Upper Egypt and eventually reunified Egypt, giving birth to the 18th dynasty and the New Kingdom. The textual evidence from this period is extremely scarce, which means that as far as Abydos is concerned, it is very difficult to definitely state for sure what the condition of the city and the temple complex was. It is likely that pilgrims continued to visit the temple complex in order to pay homage to Osiris, but perhaps not surprisingly, there was virtually no building activity there during the second intermediate period. Once Egypt was united once more by Amos, ruled 1550 to 1525 BCE, the Abydos temple complex entered into its greatest period of expansion. The majority of the temple complex that stands today was built during the latter stages of the New Kingdom, primarily by the 19th dynasty king Seti I, reigned 1294 to 1279 BCE, Ramesses II, ruled 1279 to 1213 BCE, and Merimta, reigned 1213 to 1203 BCE. The additions made by the 18th dynasty rulers were located at the southern end of the site which indicates that the latter New Kingdom kings wanted to outdo their predecessors in terms of size and grandeur. The latter New Kingdom additions were set apart and were much larger in scale. With that said, the construction done by the 18th Dynasty kings were impressive in their own right. One of the defining features of the New Kingdom construction of Abydos was the addition of cenotaphs for the cult of various kings and queens. Essentially, Egyptian cenotaphs were small shrines dedicated to a deceased deified king or queen, where non-royals could leave votive offerings. 
The trend began in the Middle Kingdom, as discussed above, but became much more widespread in the New Kingdom. This began during the reign of Amos, who built a cenotaph for his mother Tedesheri. Amos also built a terrace temple and a pyramid temple, and the site was once covered with reliefs depicting his war against the Hyksos. Amos's addition to the Abydos temple complex represented not just a change in style, but also in theology and ideology to some extent. His temples and those that would be erected during the 19th dynasty were mortuary temples, or mansions of millions of years, as they were known to the Egyptians. As the name mortuary temple indicates, they were temples where kings and queens were worshipped during their lives and after they died. The cenotaphs mentioned above would have been part of the mortuary temple if it was quite large, as in this case of the city of the first, or the entire temple itself. The English translation of the Egyptian term, mentioned in millions of years, demonstrates that the Egyptians believed that the deified royal would essentially dwell there for eternity, although the complex was still dedicated to Osiris as the primary god. The cults of kings and queens began to become more significant in Abydos in the New Kingdom. After Amos established the precedent of building mortuary temples at Abydos, there was minimal building activity there for the remainder of the dynasty, partly due to the conscious modifications Akhenaten ruled 1352 to 1336 BCE made to the Egyptian religion. Akhenaten temporarily moved the Egyptian capital to his new city of Amara, and placed all of his religious emphasis on a single god, the Aten. There is evidence, though, that the kings of the late 18th dynasty, before Akhenaten, continued to revere their ancestors. A stella from Abydos, dedicated by a man named Biok, notes that King Tutmosi IV, ruled 1400 to 1390 BCE, continued the worship of Amos I and cared for his mortuary temple. There came a royal messenger of King Tutmos IV, who has given life to his father Osiris, Lord of Abydos, to give to him all his property, which was all people, being bulls, oxen, wild cattle, fowl, and all his property, which was therein. Again one came to give the lands of Osiris to him, which, with all the people, the state being twelve hundred. Again came the like for the good God, Amos I, in order to give to him all the lands. Once the 18th dynasty ended and a new family came to power, construction at Abydos became widespread. Seti I endeavored to build the greatest mortuary temple at Abydos, but despite the fact that he had a fairly long reign, he died before it was completed. The task to complete Seti the First Temple was left to his son and successor, Ramses II. In the temple, Ramses II left an inscription that related how he had his father's temple completed. He made it as his monument for his father, Amon-Re, King of Gods, Lord of Heaven, Ruler of Thebes, Restorer of the House of his father's King Seti I, Triumphant. Behold, he went to his retreat. He attained heaven. He joined Ray in heaven. While this, his house was in course of construction. Its doors were in ruin at all their stations, and all its walls of stone and brick, no work therein was finished, neither inscriptions nor sculptures. Then his son, the lord of the two lands, Ramses the second, commanded to build the works in his house of a million years, over against Karnak, and to fashion his image resting in his house, gilded with the lectum, 
with the god sails in person in his feast of the valley to rest in his house as the first of the kings. Despite technically being Seti the first temple, it was dedicated to Osiris and the other most important Egyptian gods of the new kingdom. The center chamber of Seti the first Abydos temple was dedicated to Amun, the patron god of Thebes, who was perhaps the most important god of the new kingdom. Just to the north of the Ammon chamber were three other chambers that housed the sacred boats of the deities Osiris, Isis, and Horus. To the south there were three more chambers that housed the sacred boats of the gods Herakti, Ta, and the deified Seti I. The final touch on the temple was a shrine to Ramses I, reign 1295 to 1294 BCE, the father of Seti I. Although Ramses I had a short life, had few monuments in Egypt, his son and grandson showed him an immense respect as the progenitor of their dynasty. Perhaps one of the most interesting and historically important parts of study the first Abydos temple is a long inscription in the hall which connects the chambers of the sacred boats. On the walls of the long hallway is one of ancient Egypt's most detailed king lists. The ancient Egyptians had a sense of history and composed historiographical documents that included annals, reports, and king lists. The king lists were simply listings of kings' names, usually enclosed in cartouches in chronological order. Certain kings who were seen as anathema to the Egyptian worldview, or who may have been usurpers, such as Hatshepsut and Akhenaten, were sometimes but not always omitted from these lists. It is believed that the king list in Seti's the first temple, often referred to by Egyptologists as the Amidos list, was compiled around the year 1290 BCE, toward the beginning of Seti the first reign. The list contains the name of 75 kings enclosed in cartouches, with Seti I as the 76th king. The names are arranged in three registers facing the left. At Setchuk and all the Amara kings, Akhenaten, I, Tukhenaten, are omitted from the list as are all the kings of the Second Intermediate Period. Interestingly, though, many of the kings from the First Intermediate Period are included. A young Ramses II is depicted with his father offering to the deified kings. Ramses II is one of the most famous pharaohs in Egyptian history, and his long life ensured that he had enough time to leave plenty of monuments throughout Egypt to memorialize his name and deeds. From Abu Simbel in the south to the delta city named in his honor, Per Ramses, there is no part of Egypt where the king did not leave his name. Most of the work Ramses II had commissioned in Abydos was the completion of his father's temple, and once he made those additions to Seti I's temple, he included a long inscription that described his efforts. It is known today as the Great Abydos Inscription. Ramses II left many inscriptions throughout Egypt, and the king could never be described as laconic with his words, but the Abydos inscription is still remarkable for being the longest one from his rule. Part of the inscription reads, On one of these days it happened in the year one, the third month of the first season, at the feast, his majesty departed from the southern city. He began his way to make the voyage, while his royal barges illuminated the flood, turning downstream to the seat of might, house of Ramses, Miriam, great in victory. 
His Majesty entered to see his father the voyage of waters of the canal of Abydos, in order to found offerings for Winifer, consisting of every good thing that which his Ka loves. He found the buildings of the cemetery belonging to former kings, their tombs in Abydos beginning to be in ruin. The half of them were in process of construction in the ground, their walls lying incomplete, not one brick touching another. That which was only begun had become mere rubbish. There was no one building who was carrying out according to his plans, since their lord had flown to heaven. There was no other son who renewed the monuments of his father, which were in the cemetery. Lo, the house of Miner, said he the first, its front and rear were in the process of construction when he entered into heaven. Its monuments were not finished, its columns were not set up on its platform, its statue was upon the ground. It was not fashioned after the regulations for it of the gold house. Its diverse offerings had ceased, the lay priesthood likewise. That which was brought from its fields was taken away, their boundaries were not fixed in the land. Interesting lay the passage mentions that not only did Ramses II travel to Abydos to rebuild the temple of Seti I, but also that he renovated the royal necropolis of the kings of the first and second dynasties. Any effort to refurbish the temple would have been a major effort due to the size and layout of the complex. The Abydos temple complex was like most other New Kingdom temples in that it was massive and always growing, but it differed in its layout. Most New Kingdom temples, such as the ones at Karnak and Luxor, began with a core and then had additions built outward successively, like the rings of a tree in a rectangular shape. Seti the first temple, which was the largest extant and best preserved building at Abydos, was structured in a unique L shape. Besides the additions and renovations Ramses II made to the temple, later kings also made a number of additions. To the south of Seti the first temple was the so-called Osirion, which was the centograph of Osiris, complete with sacred lake. It is believed that construction of the Osirion began with the reign of Seti I and was completed by Ramses II's successor, Meremta. Much of the temple complex completed by Seti I and his immediate successors still stands, much as it did 3,000 years ago, but some parts have been reused, damaged, and carried away in subsequent centuries. The first century BCE Greek geographer Strabo offered one of the earliest descriptions of the temple. Above this city lies Abydos. Where is the Memnonium, a royal building, which is a remarkable structure built of solid stone and of the same workmanship as that which I ascribe to the labyrinth, though not multiplex, and also a fountain which lies at a great depth so that one descends to it down bolted galleries made of monoliths of surpassing size and workmanship. There is a canal leading to the place from the great river, and in the neighborhood of the canal is a grove of Egyptian acantha sacred to Apollo. Unfortunately, Strabo's description offers very little about the actual town, other than mentioning the canal that connected the Nile to the temple complex in the city. By the New Kingdom, though, the city of Abydos and Seti the First Temple were synonymous, with the temple being the more important of the two. The temple controlled all aspects of the town, including the economy. As mentioned earlier, 
ancient Egyptian temples owned and controlled vast stretches of agricultural land, essentially functioning as farms and ranches, where the peasants would perform most of the labor duty. The same was true sometimes with the mines in the eastern desert. Abydos was located near a wadi that gave direct access to mineral-rich areas in the eastern desert, which more than likely coincided with the city's quick growth and rise to prominence in the early dynastic period, and based on textual evidence from the New Kingdom, it is known that the Abydos Tabalt was given mineral rights to gold mines in the eastern desert by the king, which included miners of a settlement with wells. A rock inscription from the Wadi Maya, dated to the reign of Seti I, describes how the king commissioned the well to be built. On that day, his majesty inspected the desert lands as far as the mountains, for his heart desired to see the mines from which the fine gold is brought. After his majesty had gone up for many miles, he halted on the way in order to take counsel with his heart. He said, How painful is this way that has no water! What are travelers to do to relieve the parching of their throats? What quenches their thirst, the homeland being far away in the desert wide? Woe to the man who thirsts in the wilderness! Now then I will plan for them. I will make for them the means to sustain them, so that they may bless my name in the future, in years to come, that generations yet to be may come to glory in me for my energy. For I am indeed considerate and compassionate toward travelers. Now after his majesty had spoken these words to his own heart, he went about on the desert seeking a place to make a watering station. And God was guiding him so as to grant the request of one whom he loved. Stone workers were ordered to dig a well in the mountains in order that it might uplift the weary and refresh the heart of him who burns in the summer heat. Then this place was built, bearing the great name of Menari. It is full of water in great quantity, like the caravan of the twin source of the Yebu. For I am helpful, for I am good to you, for I watch over your interest. May you speak to those who shall come, kings, officials, and people, who shall confirm for me what I have done as being under the control of my house at Abydos. I speak as follows in assigning my troop of gold washers to my temple. They are appointed to transport to my house in Abydos to furnish gold to my sanctuary. As the gold flowed into Seti's temple, it no doubt had a trickle effect as it was dispersed throughout the town's market. The archaeological evidence does not paint the picture of Abydos being any wealthier than any other Egyptian city of the period, at least not in terms of remains of non-royal houses. But it would be safe to assume that there was a fair amount of growth and influx of wealth in the city during the reigns of Seti I and Ramses II. Partly due to Ramses II's extraordinarily long life, Succession problems plagued the end of the 19th dynasty, but stability returned quickly in the form of the 20th dynasty. There were nine kings who took the name Ramses during the 20th dynasty, but only one, Ramses III, 1184 to 1153 BCE, truly lived up to his predecessor's name. When Ramses III was not protecting Egypt from Libyan and Sea People's invasions, he was building extensively throughout the land much like Ramses II. Consciously trying to emulate Ramses II in many ways, Ramses III also built at Abydos. He rebuilt portions of Seti's temple that had fallen into disuse and built a palace within the temple district. 
The construction is described in a lengthy hieroglyphic text on a papyrus scroll known as the Papyrus Harris. It states, I restored Abydos, the district of Osiris, by benefactions to Tower. I built my house of stone in the midst of his temple, like Adam's great house of heaven. I settled it with people, bearing numerous gifts, rich and poor, of all that exist. I made for it diverse offerings, the gifts of its offer. O Father Osiris, Lord of Tazoser, I made for him a statue of the king, life, prosperity, and health, presenting monuments and table vessels, likewise of gold and silver. I surrounded the house of Osiris and heresies with a great wall, towering like a mountain of grit stone with ramps and towers, bearing battlements, and having doorposts of stone and doors of cedar. I hewed a great barge for Osiris, like the evening bark which bears the sun. Abydos and the Late Period In addition to the standard renovations the king made, including making a new sacred boat, the papyrus mentions towers and battlements. The more militaristic additions to the temple complex were indicative of the period, as Ramses III was constantly battling bellicose Libyan tribes that were attacking both Lower and Upper Egypt from the Western Desert. For the duration of the new kingdom, the Egyptian state was just doing enough to survive, and the situation was not good for Abydos or any other city or temple complex in Egypt for that matter. Once more, as had previously happened in Egyptian history, central authority was gradually eroding giving way to what was at first semi-autonomous and then full autonomous rule by Libyan tribes in the Delta region and a native priesthood based in Thebes that was also semi-autonomous and then fully autonomous in the Third Intermediate Period, 1075 to 728 BCE. Despite this situation, Estella from Avidos stated to the little-known King Ramses VI, reign 1142 to 1134 BCE, demonstrates that the city was still a religious destination. In this stella, the king's scribe, Hori, dedicates an offering stella to the temple itself on behalf of the pharaoh. The scribe of the pharaoh, life, prosperity, and health, Hori, triumphant, he says, I am servant of thy city, Brusus, thy city, which is the northland, Delta, I am the son of the servant of thy house, the scribe of Pharaoh, life, prosperity, and health, the favorite of Abydos, Pakani, son of Seni, thy servant. I have been brought from my city in the northland to thy city, Abydos, being a messenger of Pharaoh, life, prosperity, and health, your servant. I have come to worship before you and beseech for him jubilees. Ye will hear his prayers, according as he is profitable to your ka, and ye will accept me from hand of Pharaoh life, prosperity, and health, and my Lord life, prosperity, and health, and ye will give me favor before him daily. Make your designs, I will cherish them. It is said, Who can reverse your plans? Ye are lords of heaven and earth and the netherworld, and then do as ye say and ye will give mortuary offerings of bread and beer, and a sweet north wind for my father Pakawi, and his son the scribe of Pharaoh Hori Triumphant. Nevertheless, no matter how many mortuary offerings were made, the collapse of the new kingdom was a fait accompli. When the Libyan tribes took over the north 
and the priests of Ammon rolled at Thebes, Abydos was left in a no-man's land in the middle. The new kingdom came to an end in 1075 BCE, when repeated invasions and migrations brought down the central government, ushering in the Third Intermediate Period, 1075 to 728 BCE. The Third Intermediate Period was marked by a number of Libyan dynasties ruling in different parts of Egypt simultaneously. For Abydos, it meant that work on the temple complex was slowed, but it was not altogether halted. Abydos fell under the rule of various Libyan potentates, but there is no evidence to suggest that the region was part of a battleground like it was during the first intermediate period. An interesting historical stella discovered at Abydos from this period not only documents some of the chaotic nature of the era, but also that Abydos was still spiritually relevant even among the increasingly Egyptianized Libyans who tried to legitimize their rule by assimilating. The stella concerns a Libyan noble named Shoshenk, who buried his son Nimlot in Abydos, according to Egyptian tradition. He learned that the mortuary priest had reapportioned the mortuary endowment, so he was bringing the problem to a court in Thebes. The Shoshenk in question was the grandfather of Shoshenk I, ruled 945 to 924 BCE, the first king of the Libyan-descended 22nd dynasty. It reads, Great chief of chiefs, Shoshank, triumphant, his son in the glorious place by his father Osiris, that he may lay his beauty to rest in the city of Abydos over against, thou wilt let him survive to attain old age, while his heart, thou wilt let him join the feast of his majesty receiving full victory. The text goes on to describe how Shoshank endowed the temple complex on behalf of his deceased son, donating the occult statue of Osiris and paying for lands near Abydos. His Majesty sent the statue of Osiris, the great father of Ma, great chief of chiefs, Nimlot, triumphant, northward to Abydos. There were, a blank here, a great army in order to protect it, having numerous ships, another blank here, without number, and messengers of the great chief Ma, in order to deposit it in the august place, the sanctuary of the right eye of the sun, in order to make his offerings belonging to Amidos, according to the stipulations for making his offerings, incense, again a blank, in the hall of petition. That which was paid fifty state of land, which are in the high district of Abydos called Eternity of the Kingdom, five devon of silver. That which is in the pool which is in Abydos, fifty stat of land amounting to five devon of silver. Total citizen lands, two places being the high district south of Abydos and the high district north of Abydos, one hundred stat amounting to ten devon of silver. Eventually, in the late 8th century BCE, Abydos came under the influence of the Nubians, who established a powerful kingdom based in the city of Nepata. The Nubian king led a large army north in 728 BCE, conquering and reunifying Egypt under the Nubian 25th dynasty. Like the Libyans, the Nubians were foreigners and traditional enemies of the Egyptians, but they had grafted many aspects of Egyptian culture onto their own, over the centuries and made every effort to rule over Egypt as legitimate Egyptian kings. Thus the Nubian kings made additions to numerous temples throughout Egypt, including Abydos, 
And while the additions and renovations the Nubian kings made at Abydos Temple Complex were not significant, they indicate that Abydos was still important in the late period. In fact, the trend of popular worship that began at Abydos during the Middle Kingdom continued and became more pronounced in the late period. The late period was the time when non-royals took a much more active role in Egyptian religion by donating votive statues and stella to temples and by having thousands of sacred animals mummified and interred in sacred animal necropolises. An inscription on a statue of a Nubian-era mayor of Thebes named Mentruim Hat describes how he helped furnish the Osiris Temple. Part of it reads, I rebuilt the divine boat of Osiris in Abydos, when I found it gone to ruin. My heart did not weary, my arms did not slacken, until I had renewed what I found decayed. I do what Ammon, Lord of Heaven, loves. Speak the name of the Count, Director of the Temple, Menchulam Hat in the House of the God. The Nubians were eventually driven out of Egypt by the Libyan 26th Dynasty, based in the Delta city of Sais. These rulers are often referred to as the Sayite dynasty, based on the location of their capital, but they also attempted to rule a united Egypt as legitimate Egyptians. The Sayite kings were particularly active monument builders, but because much of their capital had been lost due to the high water table in the delta and human activity, many of their monuments will unfortunately never be discovered. A number of Sayite kings made additions to the Karnak temple complex, and they also left interesting tombs in the Memphis region. A cartouche bearing Santik II's name on a block discovered at Abydos suggests that he may have had a mortuary temple built there, though it would have been quite modest. Most of the major work done on the Abydos temple complex during the 26th dynasty took place under the Aegeus of King Amos II ruled 570-526 BCE. A biographical inscription on a statue of a noble named Pepmanif, who served as King Amas's physician, relates some of the improvements he carried out at the Abydos Temple Complex on behalf of the king, in addition to reconstructing the sanctuary and ordering other physical work done. He also reorganized the temple revenues. Part of the inscription reads, I transmitted the affairs of Abydos to the palace that His Majesty might hear them. His Majesty commanded that I do the work in Abydos in order that Abydos might be furnished. I did greatly in improving Abydos. I put all things of Abydos in order, whether sleeping or walking, seeking the good of Abydos therewith. I besought favor from my Lord every day in order that Abydos might be furnished. I built a temple of the first of the Westerners in excellent and eternal work as was commanded me of his majesty. He saw the prosperity in the affairs of the Abydos name. I surrounded it with walls of brick, and the necropolis with granite, an august shrine of electum, the adornments and the divine amulets. All the tables of the divine offerings were of gold, silver, and very costly stone. I provisioned the temple with the first of the westerners, increasing that which came into him established as daily income. His magazine was settled with male and female slaves. I gave to him one thousand stat of lands of the fields of the Abydos known, equipped with people and all small cattle. I hewed from cedar the sacred barge which I found made of acacia. I repelled the chief of the devastators from Abydos. I defended Abydos for its lord. I protected all its people. 
I gave to the temple the things that issued from the desert of Abydos, which I found in possession of the count, in order that the people of Abydos might be buried. I gave to the temple the ferry boat of Abydos, which I took from the count. For Osiris desired that his city should be equipped. His majesty praised me because of what I had done. The basic structure of the additions Amasis made at Abydos followed a typical square late period floor plan. Amasis's temple consisted of a two-meter-thick limestone enclosure that surrounded a 29-by-32-meter temple house. The additions that the Sayites made at Abydos were followed up in the 13th dynasty by King Nectambos, reigned 380-362 BCE, who built a wall that included older buildings in the complex. After Nectambo I, the temple complex and city of Abydos experienced a precipitous decline. When the Greek Ptolemies took control of Egypt after 332 BCE, the political and cultural emphasis of the country shifted to the north. The Ptolemies upheld many of the native Egyptian traditions and showed a fair amount of respect toward Egyptian culture, but they were thoroughly Greek and preferred their new coastal city of Alexandria. While the Ptolemies did add to some temples throughout Egypt, the structures at Abydos were not among them. In fact, Ptolemies more tightly regulated the temple incomes, which hurt cities such as Abydos that were dependent on the revenues raised by the temples. The Ptolemies also introduced a new god to Egypt, Serapis, which incorporated elements of Osiris and the Greek god Zeus. As a result of all these factors, Abydos eventually became an inconsequential city along the river. By the time Strabo visited Egypt in the first century BCE, he noted, Abydos appears to have once been a great city, second only to Thebes, but it is now only a small settlement. Once the Egyptians began converting to Christianity in the 1st and 2nd century CE, the greatness of Abydos was all but forgotten until modern archaeologists discovered it once more over 1,500 years later. Above this city, Ptolemaeus, lies Abydos. There is the memoriam, a royal building, which is a remarkable structure built of solid stone and of the same workmanship as that which I ascribe to the labyrinth, though not multiplex, and also a fountain which lies at a great depth, so that one descends to it down a vaulted gallery made of monoliths of surprising size and workmanship. Strabo Africa may have given rise to the first human beings, and Egypt probably gave rise to the first great civilizations, which continue to fascinate modern societies across the globe nearly 5,000 years later. From the library and lighthouse of Alexandria to the Great Pyramid at Giza, the ancient Egyptians produced several wonders of the world, revolutionized architecture and construction, created some of the world's first systems of mathematics and medicine, and established language and art that spread across the known world. With world-famous leaders like King Tut and Cleopatra, it's no wonder that today's world has so many Egyptologists. What makes the accomplishments of the ancient Egyptians all the more remarkable is that Egypt was historically a place of great political turbulence. Its position made it both valuable and vulnerable to tribes across the Mediterranean and the Middle East, and ancient Egypt had no shortage of its own internecine warfare. 
Its most famous conquerors would come from Europe, with Alexander the Great laying the groundwork for the Hellenic colony line, and the Romans extinguishing that line after defeating Cleopatra and driving her to suicide. Perhaps the most intriguing aspect of ancient Egyptian civilization was its inception from the ground up, as ancient Egyptians had no prior civilization which they could use as a template. In fact, ancient Egypt itself became a template for the civilizations that followed. The Greeks and Romans were so impressed with Egyptian culture that they often attributed many attributes of their own culture, usually erroneously, to the Egyptians. With that said, some minor elements of ancient Egyptian culture were, indeed, passed on to later civilizations. Egyptian statuary appears to have had an initial influence on the Greek version, and ancient Egyptian language continued long after the Pharaonic period in the form of the Coptic language. Although the Egyptians may not have passed their civilization directly on to later peoples, the key elements that comprised Egyptian civilization, the religion, early ideas of state, and art and architecture, can be seen in other pre-modern civilizations. Indeed, since Egyptian civilization represented some fundamental human concepts, a study of their culture can be useful when trying to understand many other pre-modern cultures. One of the primary reasons why modern scholars know so much about Egyptian history is due to many monuments found up and down the Nile. Although some of the tombs built on the west bank of the Nile River have suffered a fair amount of wind damage, and all of the great monuments have endured the ravages of time, they are amazingly well preserved, thanks both to Egyptians' arid climate and good workmanship. The Egyptian monument builders were truly a class above their contemporaries in terms of their trade, which was helped by the fact that they worked with the more permanent materials of sandstone and lime, unlike Mesopotamian builders who were forced to primarily work with mud and brick. In ancient Egypt, cities held political and religious significance, which meant that if the political or religious tides changed, so too could the fortunes of particular cities. Memphis is perhaps the best known in ancient Egypt cities because it was fortunate enough to be the political capital of the Egyptian state for most of its history. Hundreds of miles to Memphis's south, Thebes became an important city during the Middle Kingdom and its stature grew during the New Kingdom when many of the pharaohs came from there and the national god Amun had its cult center in the city. Other cities such as Tanis and Sais were important for much shorter periods in Egyptian history. The city of Abju, which was known as Abydos to the Greeks, and later became known simply as Abydos, had a history that was as long as Memphis's, and although its influence on pharaonic culture may not have been as apparent, it was no less profound. The city of Abydos was the most important political city in ancient Egypt's archaic or early dynastic period which encompassed the first two dynasties in Egyptian history, 3100 to 2650 BC. All of the kings of the first dynasty and two of the kings of the second dynasty are believed to have resided in the nearby but as yet unlocated city of Thinis and were buried in the necropolis of Abydos, making it one of the holiest sites in early pharaonic history. After the Archaic period, Abydos lost much of its political influence to Memphis, Thebes, and other cities, but retained its significance by becoming an important religious center, 2686 to 2181 BC. The first major temples were built near the city, attracting priests and pilgrims alike, 
but it was in the Middle Kingdom, 2055 to 1650 BC, when Abydos became the center of the Osiris cult. As the importance and popularity of Osiris grew throughout Egypt, so too did the city. Several kings in the New Kingdom, 1550 to 1069 BC, and the late period, built mortuary temples to their own cults and added to the existing monuments to Osiris in order to ensure their immortality and to prove their piousness to their people. Eventually, though, when the Greeks took control of Egypt, the importance of Abydos waned, and so too did its size. The existence of these cities was known thanks to Egyptian and Greek historical sources, but their locations could never be positively identified until the advent of modern marine technology. In 1996, adventurer and scholar Frank Godio identified what he believed was a major site just off the Mediterranean coastline in the Abukir Bay, east of Alexandria. It turned out Godio had discovered the ancient city of Heracleion, which was part of a larger metropolitan area that included the cities of Canopus and Nacratus. Although there is still much work to be done, the discovery has yielded vital information about Heraclean's importance as a center of trade and religion from the 7th century BCE until 8th century CE. Abydos, the history and legacy of the ancient Egyptian holy city and burial site, examines the history of the city and what life and death were like there. Along with pictures depicting important people, places, and events, you will learn about Abydos like never before. The Origins of Ancient Egyptian Mythology Ancient Egypt spans a history of some 3,000 years, depending on how people want to divide it up. Many cultures, such as ancient Greece, divided their lengthy histories either according to cultural changes, such as the classical era, beginning with the onset of democracy and ending with the death of Alexander the Great, or by following the reigns of each subsequent ruler. In ancient Egypt, the vast history was originally divided into dynasties. Living in the 3rd century BCE, the Egyptian priest Mentho divided history into 30 dynasties, which later Egyptologists have grouped into longer periods according to how much of what is considered Egypt today fell under the rule of each king. They are given as follows according to Shaw's chronology. The Pharaonic period the early dynastic period, dynasties 1 to 2, from 3050 to 2660 BCE, the Old Kingdom, dynasties 3 through 6, from 2660 to 2190 BCE, the first intermediate period, dynasties 7 through 11, between 2190 and 2066 BCE, the Middle Kingdom, dynasties 11 and 12, from 2066 to 1780 BCE, the Second Intermediate Period, dynasties 13 through 17, from 1780 to 1549 BCE, the New Kingdom, dynasties 18 through 20, from 1549 to 1069 BCE, the Third Intermediate Period, dynasties 21 to 25, from 1069 to 664 BCE, the Late Period, Dynasties 26 to 31, from 664 to 332 BCE. Then the Ptolemaic period, 332 to 30 BCE, and the Roman period, 30 BCE to 395 CE. In order to understand why modern scholars chose to divide history into longer periods of dynastic rule, it is necessary to understand the geography of Egypt's ruled dominions. 
the river that defined and dictated much of the ancient people's lives and ideologies, the Nile, runs from south to north, with a sprawling delta in the north and more barren land to the south. This distinction is the reason for one of the most confusing aspects of Egyptian history, as the upper kingdom was in the south and the lower kingdom was in the north. These two lands were represented by two distinct crowns, the red crown for the lower kingdom and the white crown for the upper kingdom, each worn by their distinct rulers and worn as double crown when both kingdoms were unified. It was during the intermediate periods that the country was divided into two kingdoms, and these periods were often marked by political turmoil and a distinct drop in cultural production such as art and architecture. From as early as the early dynastic period, the country was divided into smaller dominions along the river that modern scholars called gnomes. The word gnome comes from the ancient Greeks who, during the rule of the Greek Ptolemaic dynasty, 332 to 30 BCE in Egypt, referred to each kind of pasturage coming under the overarching rule of the pharaoh of that kingdom. This made for a useful way of organizing the inhabitants of the two kingdoms, but it causes problems when trying to define what version of a common myth is the correct or most widely believed. The reason for this is that the myths, though they had some similarities, could diverge widely from known to known. That is why writers such as the ancient historic Plutarch chose to single out a particular version of a myth and record or study it alone. Later scholars further subdivided these various types of myths according to the cult center that either produced or standardized them. They referred to them as theologies, such as the Memphite theology, myths of Memphis, or the Heliopolitan theology, myths from Heliopolis. There is the theory that these theologies were competing in some way with others from different cult centers. Shaw, however, takes the view that they were more alternatives than opposing theories, and although each cult center would substitute a god from another known for one of their own local deities, there wasn't really any kind of animosity between the differing believers. Despite the fact that there were no externally enforced dogma for the whole of Egypt, the Egyptians still managed to maintain some overarching concepts. One such concept is that of the creation of the universe. Generally speaking, there was a limitless dark ocean of chaos called Nun, out of which a god was born who instigated creation. The different cult centers felt at liberty to amend or augment that concept to incorporate local taste and allegiances to deities. Later on, during a period of the New Kingdom, the cult center of Thebes gained prominence and the priests there tried to unify the earlier traditions of Egypt. In this attempt, Anon was the creator god but the Thebans also incorporated the traditions of major cult centers like Hermopolis, Memphis, and Heliopolis, which often seem quite disparate accounts to the modern reader, but were quite ingeniously brought together at Thebes around 1200 BCE. The general creation story contains within it two aspects that are crucial to understanding all the myths of ancient Egypt, Mat and Isfet. Isfet represents chaos or disorder, generally speaking, and it was seen as a fundamental element of everything in existence. There was no notion of trying to eradicate Isfet from their general lives in ancient Egypt. After all, it was said to be one of the elements that was present in the limitless ocean at the dawn of creation. 
The only desire for the ancient Egyptians was that Isfet never became more prevalent than Mat, its opposite, justice. Mat was often described as a goddess wearing a feather on her head, which was also the hieroglyph that represented her. She, or simply the concept of justice, was believed to be present in all aspects of life, and if it was broken by anyone, there would be a punishment. According to the Middle Kingdom coffin text, it was believed that Atom, the great finisher of creation, inhaled Mott in order to gain his consciousness. Inhale your daughter Mott, said Nun to Atom, and raise her to your nostrils so that your consciousness may live. May they not be far from you, your daughter Mott and your son Shu, whose name is Life. It is your son Shu who will lift you up. After that, Atom was capable of making the waters of Nun recede away from him, making him rise above them and become what remained, or the mound of creation. It's important to take note of the fact that there was no creation until Atom inhaled life and justice. Therefore, without Mott and her dualistic counterpart, there would have been no world, and that is the reason for Mott and Isfet's ubiquity, as well as the acceptance of chaos in the world as seen by the ancient Egyptians. After Adam had separated himself from Nun, the children he kept inside, notably Shu and Mat Isfet, often represented as the form of the goddess Tefnut, were now separated from their father, and Tefnut would go on to become the mother of all the gods. The gods as concepts. Like in many polytheistic religious beliefs, the gods of ancient Egypt were neither omnipotent nor omnipresent despite appearing in many locations simultaneously in some of these myths. In fact, the ancient Egyptians used to worship the deity of the location they found themselves in, since each deity was more or less present in each part of the country. They were decidedly human in their relationships with each other, just like the ancient Greek gods. They fought, argued, made love, and married, and were ultimately capable of death, even if this meant that they would simply be reborn by the Roth. Each god or goddess was responsible for an aspect of reality the ancient Egyptians encountered every day, but when they needed to, they could share their powers with another deity, which resulted in a kind of merging of the two. This was the case for the dying sun god, who merged with Osiris so as to borrow his regenerative power and to be reborn the following day. In the Memphite theology, the universe was created by the god Ptah, who conceived the elements of creation in his heart and pronounced them into existence with the divine words as he pronounced their names. Yet some scholars believe that Ptah was only capable of such creation after he borrowed the heart and tongue from Amon, the ultimate creator. As such, it was Ptah's being the personification of creative process that directed and guided Amon's creative abilities. When the deities merged, or even appeared to take on the attributes of another god or goddess, they were said to literally become the other deity. Shaw gives the example of Hathor attacking mankind with such a rage that she actually transformed into the bloodthirsty goddess Sekhmet. It might be best to think of the deities of ancient Egypt as manifestations rather than distinct personalities with concrete biographies. As such, they helped the ancient Egyptians describe the world around them, and by giving precedence to their myths, explain away the more confusing aspects of why the world is the way it is. In ancient Egyptian cultures, the duality of deities, 
most often manifested in their male-female relationships was an integral aspect of the belief systems. Their duality appeared in none, the limitless ocean of potentiality out of which the universe was born. Within those waters, the male and female aspects appeared as frogs, males, and snakes, females. There were four couples, according to the beliefs at Hermopolis, making up the eight most important gods of pre-creation, referred to at this cult center as the Undoed. Each of these gods and goddesses acquired names, and as a unit, they represented the earliest aspects of reality. Nun and Nalnet represented the limitless waters out of which everything was created. Ha and Halnet represented the concept of infinity. Kuk and Kalkat represented darkness, and Ammon and Ammonet represented the concept of hiddenness. Later assessments of the Ognode, certainly by the time of the Thewan attempts at unification, emphasized the role of Ammon in the creation of the first island and subsequently of the egg from which the sun god is hatched. Aton's children, Pshu and Tefnut, were also siblings and a couple at the same time, but their separation from their father led to the separation between and above and below by Shu, which created all the space in which life could appear and grow. Also, Shu represented Neneh, which was the Egyptian concept of cyclical time, where his wife came to represent Dijet, which was the concept of time at a standstill, covering everything that is remaining and lasting, such as the mummies or stone architecture, according to Gary Shaw. In the coupling of the gods, Osiris and Isis were one of the earliest to have established their incestuous relationship with an apparent wooing in the womb. Isis's role as a wife and mother is unlike any other in Egyptian mythology. The story of Osiris's death and resurrection is best read with Isis's agency in mind, too. She is not like an iron warner of her husband, nor is she the mere receptacle of a divine birth. She actively seeks out Osiris's body, performing a magical ritual to acquire from the body enough of Osiris's seed to conceive, and she even goes so far as to poison Ray in order to learn his secret names and pass on their power to her child. Similar to Osiris, Osiris is an instigator as much as a carer. If Osiris ensures the regeneration and rebirth of the sun, the dead and the crops beside the Nile, then none of those accomplishments would have been brought into fruition without Isis's unwavering persistence to resurrect her husband. She is no ordinary queen in an evil European sense. She was proactive and, as such, defined Osiris as much as he defined her. Now that the basics of Egyptian beliefs have been presented, the myths will hopefully become a little clearer or at least more contextualized. The ability to use original text is a luxury that is available to modern readers thanks to the passionate and untiring work of translators and scholars around the world, an enormous job that still has vast veins of knowledge to uncover and should not be forgotten when enjoying even the most cursory study of this beautiful mythology. The Myths After Shu and Tufnut were separated from their father, they also gave birth to a pair of deities called Nut and Geb. Nut was the sky goddess, often depicted as a naked lady with her hands and feet touching the earth, and her body representing the heavens. Geb was the male god of the earth, 
usually represented as a reclining man with a green skin with foliage on it. There is a story told in Plutarch's Moralia that equates the Egyptian gods with those of the ancient Greeks, something Plutarch was prone to do. The story talks about how Newt and Gem, whom Plutarch equates with the Greek deities Ray and Cronus, can't make love because Shu kept them separated. When they try to meet his secret, however, they incurred the wrath of the sun, or Ray. They say that the sun, when he became aware of Ray's intercourse with Cronus, invoked a curse upon her that she should not give birth to a child in any month or year. But Hermes, Thoth, was enamored of the moon, consorted with her. Later playing at drafts at the moon, he won from her the seventieth part of each of her periods of illumination, and from all the winnings he composed five days, and intercalculated them in addition to the original three hundred and sixty days. The Egyptians even now call these five days intercalculated and celebrate them as the birthdays of the gods. They relate that on the first of these days Osiris was born, and at the hour of his birth a voice issued forth saying, The Lord of all advances to the light. But some relate that a certain Pamoels, while he was drawing water in Thebes, heard a voice from the shrine of Zeus, which bade him proclaim with a loud voice that a mighty and beneficent king Osiris had been born. And for this Cronus entrusted to him the child Osiris, which he brought up. It is in his honor that the festival of Pamelia is celebrated, a festival which resembles the phallic processions. On the second of these days, Aurorus was born, whom they call Apollo, and some call him also the elder Horus. On the third day, Typhon, Seth, was born, but not Hindu season or matter, but with a blow he broke through his mother's side and leapt forth. On the fourth day, Isis was born in the regions that are ever moist, and on the fifth, Nephthys, to whom they gave the name of Finality, and the name of Aphrodite, and some also the name of Victory. There is also a tradition that Horus and Arius were sprung from the sun, Isis from Hermes, and Seth and Nephthys from Cronus. For this reason, the kings considered the third of the intercalculated days as inauspicious and transacted no business on that day, nor did they give any attention to their bodies until nightfall. They relate, moreover, that Nethias became the wife of Seth, but Isis and Osiris were enamored of each other and consorted together in the darkness of the moon before their birth. Some say that Arius came from this union and was called the Elder Horus by the Egyptians, but Apollo by the Greeks. Since many non-Greek sources do not include the birth of Horus the Elder in their lists, counting all of the children from Ammon, Atom, Shu, Tefnut, Geb, Nut, Osiris, Seth, Isis, and Nephthys, makes up what is known as the Great Enid, the group of nine deities who represented the physical creation of the world. That Ammon was the progenitor of the Enid does not go far enough towards defining the power he maintained after his birth. It's important to remember that Ammon created Atom, and then they became one deity that subsequently birthed all of existence, including the Enid. For this reason, the ancient Egyptians saw Ammon in all things, especially the gods and goddesses of the Enid, who were understood to be forces called Neturu, the gods, that interacted independently but were always a part of Ammon the creator. Seth was essentially a god of disorder, and although he was associated with confusion, violence, and even evil, 
It was this god's nature to question and disrupt the status quo, to try and upset the balance of Mat and Isfet. In the art of ancient Egypt, Seth often appears as a strange animal with an elongated snout, tall rectangular ears, and an erect tail, but also as a human with the same animal's head, a red ox, a desert oryx, or even a pig or hippopotamus. In fact, so strange is this animal that most commonly represents Seth that modern scholars have been unable to ascertain what the ancient scribes wanted to depict as Seth's animal. It has subsequently been referred to as the Set or Seth animal. Seth was also the god of the Red Land or the desert, which contrasted him with Osiris's son Horus, who was the god of the Black Land, the fertile soil and the Nile floodplains. This contrast is fairly common in Seth's character. He had a cult base at Ambos in Egypt, but he was also said to represent foreigners. Whereas most gods had bones of silver, Seth's were of iron, connecting him with metallurgy in general, but more importantly, with a bellicose metal used later in warfare. Ray gave Osiris the crown of Egypt and invested him with his power in the Helibolitan known. However, Given Ray was the god of the sun and Osiris was not, the new king quickly succumbed to the sheer heat of the sun god's crown and began his reign with a wilted expression and a swollen face. He did not die from exposure to the sun god's crown, however, and so he eventually came to be associated with Ray and later the Greeks too. As Diodorus Seculus made clear, Now the men of Egypt, he says, when ages ago they came into existence, as they looked upon the fragment and were struck with both awe and wonder at the nature of the universe, conceived that two gods were both eternal and first, namely the sun and the moon, whom they called respectively Osiris and Isis, these appellations having in each case been based upon a certain meaning in them. For when the names were translated into Greek, Osiris means many-eyed, and properly so. For in shedding his rays in every direction, he surveys with many eyes as if it were all land and sea. Osiris was said to have two generals, one in the south, Upper Egypt, called Hu, who was the personification of authority itself, and one in Lower Egypt called Sia, meaning perception. This is an important antecedent of the Egyptian royal power structure. As seen above, the country's history can be written as a history of division versus unity having Osiris unify the country with two generals whose names carried such political military weight was surely not accidental. Osiris's rule was the epitome of kingship, and the Egyptians never forgot it. Osiris grew into a fine and just king, greatly respected by his subjects. In fact, his reign took on the memory of a kind of golden age from the ancient Egyptians. Humans and gods respected Osiris, and that led to a constant presence of food and cool winds from the north, which tempered the ferocity of the desert. Associating a golden age, whether in the past or future, with a beloved god or goddess is a common occurrence in all the world's religions, and in Egypt, Osiris was the most beloved of all. This was, perhaps, because of his love of all things that give humanity joy, art and wine especially. This association with wine is what convinced many of the ancient Greeks to associate with him with their own god of celebration. And of the ancient Greek writers of mythology, some came to give Osiris the name Dionysus, or, with a slight change in form, Sirius. One of them, Eumopolis, in his Bacchic hymn, speaks of 
our Dionysus, shining like a star with fiery eye in every ray. While Orpheus says, and this is why men call him Shining One. Some say that Osiris is also represented with the cloak of a fawn skin about his shoulders, as imitating the sky spangled with stars. Diodorus Siculus paints Osiris as a culture hero of sorts. These culture heroes were the deities, or even sometimes humans or spirits, as was the case in Native American culture, that instigated certain cultural norms later on. Osiris having two generals, one in the north and one in the south, was one such culture change caused by Osiris, but Diodorus takes the step further to include cannibalism. And after Osiris married Isis and succeeded to the kingship, he did many things of service to the social life of man. Osiris was the first, they record, to make men give up cannibalism. For after Isis had discovered the fruits of both wheat and barley, which grew wild of the land along with other plants, but was still unknown to man, and Osiris had also devised the cultivation of these fruits, all men were glad to change their food, both because of the pleasing nature of the newly discovered grains, and because it seemed to their advantage to refrain from their butchery of one another. As proof of the discovery of these fruits, they offer the following ancient custom, which they still observe. Even yet, at harvest time, the people make a dedication of the first heads of grain to be cut, and standing besides the sheaf's beat themselves, and called upon Isis. By this act rendering honor to the goddess for the fruits which she discovered at the season when she first did this. Both Osiris and Isis were believed to favor those who nurtured the arts and those who made technological advances as well, according to Diodorus Siculus. This made an argument for the very early technological advancements of the ancient Egyptians, since their first real king, after the direct rule of earth god Geb, was a patron of the arts and advancement. Special esteem at the court of Osiris and Isis was also according to those who should invent any of the arts or devise any useful process. Consequently, since copper and gold mines had been discovered in the Theban, they fashioned implements with which they killed the wild beast and worked the soil. And thus, an eager rivalry brought the country under cultivation, and they made images of the gods and magnificent golden chapels for their worship. The desire to see the promulgation of the arts and technology was part of Osiris's general personality. As a god related to the complex agricultural system the ancient Egyptians invented, Osiris would no doubt have loved and respected knowledge in all its forms from the early days of his worship. It is most likely for this reason that Thoth was his most highly honored advisor according to Diodorus Seculus. The one most highly honored by him was Hermes, Thoth, who was endowed with unusual ingenuity for devising things capable of improving the social life of man. It was by Hermes, for instance, according to them, that the common language of mankind was first proto-articulated, and that many objects which were still nameless received an appellation, and that the alphabet was invented, and that ordinances regarding the honors and offerings due to gods were duly established. He was also the first to observe the orderly arrangement of the stars and the harmony of the musical sounds and their nature, to establish a wrestling school, and to give thought to the rhythmical movement of the human body and its proper development. He also made a lyre, and gave it three strings, 
initiating the seasons of the year, for he adopted three tones, the high, low, and medium, the high for summer, the low for winter, and the medium for spring. The Greeks were also taught by him how to expound their thoughts, and it was for this reason that he was given the name Hermes. In a word, Osiris, taking him for his priestly scribe, communicated with him on every matter, and used his counsel above all others. The olive tree also, they claimed, was his discovery, not Athena's, as the Greeks say. There was a long-standing tradition of people from one culture visiting another and equating the foreign gods to virgins of gods they already worshipped based on their physical or mythological attributes. The Romans did so with the Greeks and the early Germanic tribes, resulting in the Roman Mars being equated with the Greek Ares and the Germanic Tyre very early on. The Greeks also practiced this in their interactions with their neighbors. The Phoenician god Melquat was called the Hercules of Tyre because of his similarities in their myths. It might seem difficult at first to understand why the putrefying god of Egypt should be compared with the joyous god Dionysus. However, in the Cretan version of the Dionysian myths, he is not only the son of Persephone, he is also once devoured by the Titans, all except the heart, which was the only organ left inside the mummified bodies dedicated to Osiris. As Diodorus Seculus relates, Osiris's connection with his rebirth in agricultural terms is one aspect the two gods share. Osiris, they say, was also interested in agriculture and was reared in Nysa, a city of Arabia Felix near Egypt, being the son of Zeus, and the name which he bears among the Greeks is derived both from his father and from the birthplace, since he is called Dionysus. And the discovery of the vine, they say, was made by him near Nysa, and that, having further devised the further treatment of its fruit, he was the first to drink wine and taught mankind at large the culture of the vine and the use of wine, as well as the way to harvest the grape and to store wine. Osiris was also said to have gone on almost Bacchic adventures before becoming the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. This mimics Dionysus' youthful wanderings, in which he taught the people of the world about agriculture, and especially the fruit of the vine, while at the same time imposing some kind of benevolent conquest upon them. Of Osiris they say that, being of a beneficent turn of mind, and eager for glory, he gathered together a great army with the intention of visiting all the inhabited earth and teaching the race of men how to cultivate the vine and sow wheat and barley, for he supposed that if he made men give up their savagery and adopt a general manner of life, he would receive immortal honors because of the magnitude of his benefactions. And this did in fact take place, since not only the men of his time who received this gift, but all succeeding generations as well because of the delights which they take in the foods which were discovered, have honored those who introduced them as gods most illustrious. Now, after Osiris had established the affairs of Egypt and turned the supreme power over to Isis, his wife, they say that he placed Hermes at her side as counselor because his prudence raised him above the king's other friends, and as general of all the land under his sway, he left Hercules, who was both his kinsman and renowned for his valor and physical strength. Then he himself left Egypt with his army to make his campaign, taking in his company also his brother, whom the Greeks called Apollo. And it was Apollo, they say, who discovered the laurel, a garland of which all men placed above the head of the god above all others. 
The discovery of ivy was also attributed to Osiris by the Egyptians and made sacred to this god, just as the Greeks also do in the case of Dionysus. And in the Egyptian language, they say, the ivy is called the plant of Osiris and for the purpose of dedication is preferred to the vine. Since the latter sheds its leaves while the former ever remains green, the same rule, moreover, the ancients have followed in the case of other plants, also which are perennially green, ascribing, for instance, the myrtle to Aphrodite and the laurel to Apollo. Osiris meets with Dionysus's favorite mythological beings, the satyrs and muses. Before returning home to Egypt with a plethora of gifts, Osiris spends his time merrymaking in full Dionysian style and giving technology and power to foreign peoples so that they would eventually pay tribute to him later. As Plutarch puts it, one of the first actuated of Osiris in his reign was to deliver the Egyptians from their destitute and brutish manner of living. This he did by showing them the fruits of cultivation, by giving them laws, and by teaching them to honor the gods. Later he traveled over the whole earth, civilizing it without the slightest need of arms, but most of the people he won over to his ways by the charm of his persuasive discourse, combined with song and all manner of music. Hence the Greeks came to identify him with Dionysus. Similar to Dionysus, then, Osiris was originally a flamboyant merrymaker with the desire to encourage and also disseminate knowledge and technology around the world. He was the instigator of a great many things for humanity and the gods, and that power did not leave him even after death. Since the Egyptians considered the subject of Osiris's death taboo to a certain extent, there are very few surviving texts predating the Roman era that describe the subject at length. It is for that reason that most scholars refer to the later accounts of Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch. Furthermore, for what remains of the earlier text, it seems that the story changed over the centuries, as some versions even have him drowning in the Nile and then floating north as he does in later versions. All accounts include the trickery of Seth and the brutality of Osiris's murder. During his absence, the tradition is that Typhon, Seth, attempted nothing revolutionary because Isis, who was in control, was vigilant and alert. But when Osiris returned home, Seth contrived a treacherous plot against him and formed a group of conspirators, 72 in number. He had also the cooperation of a queen from Ethiopia, who was there at the time and whose name they also report as Azo. Seth, having secretly measured Osiris's body and having made ready a beautiful chest of corresponding size artistically ornamented, caused it to be brought into the room where the festivity was in progress. The company was much pleased at the sight of it and admired it greatly, whereupon Seth jestingly promised to present it to the man who should find the chest to be exactly his length when he lay down in it. They all tried it in turn, but no one fitted it. Then Osiris got in and lay down, and those who were in the plot ran to it and slammed down the lid, which they fastened with nails for the outside and also by using molten lead. Then they carried the chest to the river and sent it on its way to the sea through the Tanitic mouth. Wherefore the Egyptians even to this day name this mouth the hateful and execrable. Such is the tradition. The first to learn of the deed and to bring men's knowledge and account of what had been done were the pans and satyrs who lived in the region around Chemitz. And so, even to this day, the sudden confusion and consternation of a crowd is called a panic. Isis, when the tidings reached her, at once cut off one of her tresses and put on a garment of mourning in a place where the city still bears the name of Kapto. 
Others think that the name means deprivation, for they also express deprive, by meaning cup team. But Isis wandered everywhere at her wit's end, and no one whom she approached did she fail to address, and even when she met some little children she asked them about the chest. As it happened, they had seen it, and they told her the mouth of the river through which the friends of Seth had launched the coffin into the sea. Wherefore the Egyptians think that little children possess the powers of prophecy, and they try to divine the future from the portents which they find in children's words, especially when children are playing about in holy places and crying out whatever chances comes into their mind. Osiris's connection with Anubis is very much taken for granted in many of the texts concerning death and burial. Anubis was the embalming god who prepared the dead for their journey, and he was even there at the end of their mortality, when their hearts were judged against the feather of Mott in front of Osiris himself. However, this connection was solidified not by Osiris's adultery, but by Isis's perseverance in resurrecting her husband. The Egyptians relate also that Isis, learning that Osiris in his love had consorted with her sister Nephsis through ignorance in the belief that she was Isis, and seeing the proof of this in the garland of Melotite, which he left with Nephsis, sought to find the child, for the mother, immediately after its birth, had exposed it because of her fear of Seth, and when the child had been found, after great toil and trouble, with the help of dogs, which led Isis to it, it was brought up and became her guardian and attendant, receiving the name of Anubis, and it is said to protect the gods just as dogs protect men. Thereafter Isis, as they relate, learned that the chest had been cast up by the sea near the land of Byblos, and that the waves had gently set it down in the midst of a clump of heather. The heather in a short time ran into a very beautiful and massive stock, and enfolded and embraced the chest with its growth, and concealed it within its trunk. The king of the country admired the great size of the plant, and cut off the portion that enfolded the chest, which was now hidden from sight, and used it as a pillar to support the roof of his house. These facts, they say, Isis ascertained by the divine inspiration of rumor, and so she came to Byblos, and sat down by a spring, all dejection and tears. She exchanged no word with anybody, save only that she welcomed the queen's maidservants, and treated them with great amiability, plaiting their hair for them, and imparting to their persons a wondrous fragrance from her own body. But when the queen observed her maidservants, a longing came upon her for the unknown woman, and for such hair-dressing, and for a body fragrant with ambrosia. Thus it happened that Isis was sent for, and became so intimate with the queen that the queen made her the nurse of her baby. They relate that Isis nursed the child by giving it her finger to suck on instead of her breast, and in the night she would burn away the mortal portions of its body. She herself would turn into a swallow and flit about the pillar with a wailing lament, until the queen who had been watching, when she saw her babe on fire, gave forth a loud cry, and thus deprived it of immortality. Then the goddess disclosed herself and asked for the pillar, which served to support the roof. She removed it with the greatest ease, and cut away the wood of the heather, which surrounded the chest. Then, when she had wrapped up the wood in a linen cloth, and had poured perfume upon it, she entrusted it to the care of the kings, and even to this day the people of Byblos venerate this wood, which is preserved in the shrine of Isis. Then the goddess threw herself down upon the coffin with such a dreadful wailing that the younger of the king's sons expired on the spot. The elder son she kept with her, 
and, having placed the coffin on board a boat, she put out from land. Since the Phaedrus River, toward the early morning, fostered a rather boisterous wind, the goddess grew angry and dried up its stream. The wandering aspect of Isis's myth here strongly resembles the story of another Mediterranean goddess who wandered in lament over a loved one she lost to death. Demeter The Greek version of this story is extremely similar to that of Isis, except Demeter laments the kidnapping of her daughter Persephone at the hands of the god of the underworld, Hades. Demeter even enters the house of a royal family to become nurse to a child that she would later place in a fire to magically burn away the weakness inherent in humans. The flow of influences between certain Greek and Egyptian myths is unquestioned. An agreement is reached in the Greek myth, however, to allow Persephone to leave the underworld for part of the year in order to bring fertility back to the earth for at least that amount of time. In the Egyptian version, Isis has to use her magic to gain some part of her husband back, and in the following passage, it is clear that the goddess goes through a desperate ordeal to do so. In the first place, where she found seclusion, when she was quite by herself, they relate that she opened the chest and laid her face upon the face within and caressed it and wept. The child came quietly up behind her and saw what was there, and when the goddess became aware of his presence, she turned about and gave him one awful look of anger. The king's eldest child could not endure the fright and died. He also is the recipient of honors because of the goddess, for they say that the Maneros, of whom the Egyptians sing at their convivial gatherings, is this very child. They also recount that this Maneros, who is the theme of the songs, was the first to invent music. But some say that the word is not the name of any person, but an expression belonging to the vocabulary of drinking and feasting. Good luck be ours in things like this. And that this is really the idea expressed by the exclamation Maneros, whenever the Egyptians use it. In the same way, we may be sure that the likeness of corpses which, as it is exhibited to them, is carried around at a chest, it is not a reminder of what happened to Osiris, as some assume, but it is to urge them, as they contemplate it, to use and to enjoy the present, since all very soon must be what is now, and this is their purpose in introducing it into the midst of merrymaking. As they relate, Isis proceeded to her son Horus, who was being reared in Butol and bestowed the chest in a place well out of the way. But Seth, who was hunting by night, and the light of the moon happened upon it. Recognizing the body, he divided it into fourteen parts and scattered them, each in a different place. Isis learned of this and sought for them again, sailing through the swamps in a boat of papyrus. This is the reason why people sailing in such boats are not harmed by the crocodiles, since these creatures in their own way show either their fear or their reverence for the gods. The traditional result of Osiris's dismemberment is that there are many so-called tombs of Osiris in Egypt, for Isis held a funeral for each part when she found it. Others deny this and assert she caused effigies of him to be made, and these she distributed among the several cities, pretending that she was giving them his body, in order that he might receive divine honors in a greater number of cities, and also that, if Seth should succeed in overpowering Horus, he might despair of ever finding the true tomb when so many were pointed out to him, all of them called the Tomb of Osiris.
Of the parts of Osiris's body, the only one which Isis did not find was the male member. For the reason that this had at once been tossed into the river, Elenlopodidus, the sea bream, and the pike had fed upon it. And it is from these very fishes that the Egyptians are most scrupulous of abstaining. But Isis made a replica of the member to take its place, and consecrated the phallus, in honor of which the Egyptians even at the present day celebrate a festival. There is a variation of the dismemberment story, in which the role of Anubis is brought to the fore. According to that version, Anubis was mummifying the body of Osiris under the watchful gaze of Seth. Seth used his magic to learn when Anubis would leave the body to be attended by guards, and then Seth took on the form of Anubis and slipped past the guards with ease. However, before Seth could get too far, Anubis caught him heading westward, and he caught and castrated the trickster god then and there. There are many confusing aspects in Egyptian mythology, but the fact that Isis became pregnant with Osiris's child before she had managed to resurrect him is surely one of the most interesting. Again, there is a lack of free Roman sources, but it appears unsurprisingly to center around the ceremonies of mummification. The account found in the great hymn of Osiris, Steel of the Emenes, is short, but it is the fullest of the pre-Roman sources. Thy sister Isis acted as protectors to thee. She drove thy enemies away. She averted seasons of calamity from thee. She recited the word or formula with the magical power of her mouth, being skilled of tongue and never halting of a word, being perfect in command and word. Isis the magician avenged her brother. She went about seeking for him untiringly. She flew around and round over this earth, uttering wailing cries of grief, and she did not alight on the ground until she had found him. She made light to come forth from her feathers, she made air to come into being by means of her two wings, and she cried out the death cries for her brother. She made to rise up the helpless members of him whose heart was at rest, she drew from him his essence, and she made therefrom an heir. She suckled the child in solitude, and none knew where his place was, and he grew in strength. Horus' hand is mighty, or victorious, within the house of Gab, and the company of the gods rejoice greatly at the coming of Horus, the son of Osiris, whose heart is firmly established, the triumphant one, the son of Isis, the flesh and bone of Osiris. The Chacha of Truth, and the company of the gods, and the Nebertetcher himself, and the lords of truth, gather together to him and assemble therein. Verily those who defeat inequity rejoice in the house of Geb to bestow the divine rank and divinity upon him to whom it belongeth, and the sovereignty upon him who it is by right. Shaw likens this account to the opening of the mouth ceremony, in which two Egyptian priests would stand on either side of the mummy they were attending to and touch each part of the body in order to awaken it for a journey into the afterlife. The birth of Horus is a fascinating part of the Isis and Osiris myth. Isis not only ensures that he is born from Osiris's already deceased body, but she also tricks the sun god Ray into revealing the secret and powerful names he hid from the other gods. Osiris was no passive father either, despite his death. As Plutarch relates, there was a story of Osiris embodying the departure king by passing on the knowledge he had learned to his son. Lightly, as they relate, Osiris came to Horus from the other world and exercised and trained him for the battle. 
After a time, Osiris asked Horus what he held to be the most noble of all things. One Horus replied, to avenge one's father and mother for evil done to them, Osiris then asked him what animal he considered the most useful for them to go forth to battle. And when Horus said, a horse, Osiris was surprised and raised the question why it was that he had not rather said a lion than a horse. Horus answered that a lion was a useful thing for a man in need of assistance, but that a horse served better for cutting off the flight of an enemy and annihilating him. When Osiris heard this, he was much pleased, since he felt that Horus now had an adequate preparation. It is said that, as many were continually transferring their allegiance to Horus, Saskonkumine, Thurus, also came over to him, and a serpent which pursued her was cut to pieces by Horus's men, and now, in memory of this, the people threw down a rope in their midst and chop it up. Now the battle, as they related, lasted many days, and Horus prevailed. Isis, however, to whom Seth was delivered in chains, did not cause him to be put to death, but released him and let him go. Horus could not endure this with equanimity. He laid hands upon his mother and wrested the royal diadem from her head, but Thoth put upon her a helmet like unto the head of a cow. Seth formally accused Horus of being an illegitimate child, but with the help of Thoth to plead his cause, it was decided by the gods that he also was legitimate. Seth was then overcome in two other battles.